Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Hmm. That beautiful sitar music. That's enough of that. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues podcast. Today we're getting back into Jung's greatest pupils. I'm really enjoying um, Edward Eddinger's book uh, that we've been talking about on and off. It's called The Eternal Drama. And it's really, really, really fucking good. For lots of reasons, <clears throat> but I think what it does is it it does a lot of the same thing that um, Jordan Peterson did for me when he started talking about biblical stories. It presents these Greek myths in a way that um, in a way that allows yourself to see yourself in the symbols. What I mean is, we're going to hear about the personalities of the ancient Greek gods, and we're going to do our best today to see ourselves in them. And this is what. Jordan did such a good job of help, helping me to do with the biblical stories, making them come to life, making them applicable, you know, uh, relevant for the first time uh, maybe in my life. And Edinger's doing this with with the Greek uh, gods. It's really interesting, especially when you consider that uh, both Jordan Peterson and Edinger were students of Jung, and Jung was a student of of the philosopher Nietzsche. And so I think I want to start with a little bit of Nietzsche this morning, I'm going to give you, uh, listen guys, I'm not an expert on Nietzsche. Um, I've read a lot of people who are <laughs> experts on Nietzsche, but I haven't got into this um, directly as much as I'd like to. So I'm going to give you the Sparks Notes version as best I can. Um, but Nietzsche, he was a very sick man, ill physically. He didn't live long and he was um, incapacitated for a large part of his life. So he did a lot of thinking because he couldn't do much else. And he was of the mind where deep thinking was, was, you know, fun for him, entertaining. So he did a lot of that. And writing or speaking was always difficult, you know, as a man. So, so Nietzsche is described as philosophizing with a hammer, uh, which I think is a cool phrase. But what he mean, what's meant by that is every word was important, every word was calculated, uh, every idea was sharp, because he had a lot of time to think about it and make it, you know, the most effective way possible. And and that's what he did in his philosophy, and that's why he's remembered today, and why he stands out from lots of other people. One of the things, um, I mean, you, there's things you probably think of when you think of Nietzsche. A lot of people think of the phrase, God is dead, that certainly does go back to Nietzsche. Um, but more impor- in, importantly, for the purposes of our discussion today, Nietzsche made this weird distinction. The way he saw 
the way he saw the world, or maybe the way of the way of life of human beings anyway, as falling into two categories. One of them he called Apollonian. The other one he called Dionysian. And what he, what, he, what he means by that is the Greek god Apollo and Dionysus. So there's a way in which you can live your life that's Apollonian, that's representative of the god Apollo. And there's a way in which you can live your life which is representative of Dionysus. And um, I'm just going to do my best to tell you what, what I think this means. And we're going to hear about Apollo today. We're not going to hear about Dionysus, but we'll hear about, hear about Apollo. Um, Apollo was something like the God that represents consciousness. And there's parallels, you know, in, in ancient uh, Egypt, it would have been Horus, the all-seeing eye. It would have been Horus that was the God of consciousness. If you go back to the Sumerian Babylonian days, um, it was Marduk. Marduk had eyes all around his head. He could see everything. He was the God of consciousness. This is what Apollo is. He's something like this. He's the God of rationality, of truth, um, and of consciousness. The ability to see the world as it is, to know truth, to know facts, to have knowledge, to um, use that knowledge to manipulate the world. All that stuff really falls back to to consciousness, and that gets embodied up in, into a God that the Greeks called Apollo. So you can imagine you've got this aware, awake um sober, analytical, rational sort of way of viewing the world and living your life. Everything's weighed and measured and considered, uh, that kind of thing. And then there's Dionysus. If you don't know Dionysus, he's the god of the vine, of wine, the god of drunkenness, the god of frivolity and partying. Um, And it's quite a different figure from Apollo. It's not the buttoned-up, straight-laced, you know, just-the-facts-ma'am kind of a personality. Dionysus is the, the drunken, um, lowered inhibitions, um, speaking truth, you know, uh, that, that, kind of a, that kind of a personality. It's associated with drunkenness, drug use, um, psychedelics, uh, all sorts of things. So Dionysus is a way of tapping into these primal, visceral parts of your experience, you know? Kyle and I talked a little bit about pagan religion and pagan rituals, and, you know, they're very visceral. Like, when I talk about um, ritual orgies in the forest, you know, in a sacred grove, and everyone's naked and having sex and chanting, and there's fire, and there's, you know, mystery in the air, and, and, uh, you know, that sort of thing is so different from what we think of, you know, in modern kind of religious rituals. Nothing like that, you know? What about the Aztecs, the Mayans, or whatever, doing human sacrificing? Can you imagine killing another human being in front of the whole community? Everybody being on board that this, that this price has to be paid, and somebody giving up their life in this brutal way as a spectacle to everyone else, as some sort of a gift to the gods. Can you imagine that today? We just don't have this visceral connection to our primal bodies and hormones and organs. You know, it's like, um, it's just overshadowed by science and thinking. You know, there is a part of us that's about feeling and doing. And there's a part of us that's about thinking, you know. And they're not the same. They're not even close to the same. 
So Dionysus is the instinctual part, the animal part, the part that the personality that's looking for experiences of the body, for altered states of consciousness, for mystery, um, that sort of thing. Apollo is exactly the opposite. And Nietzsche saw this as a conflict, that people tended to have one personality or the other. And, um, you know, obviously they don't, they don't mesh well. So what do you do about that? And, um, and I think that's a good jumping off place, talking about these Greek gods as personality types. And um, Edinger is going to do a better job than me, so I'll, let me let Edinger speak for himself. The first section I'm going to call the Olympian gods. And Edinger says this. He says, The early civilized mind took it as self-evident that there were beings who lived forever. This is not so obvious to the modern mind. The Greek pantheon tells us that the immortal ones are fundamental presences. In psychological terms, we can say that they are inhabitants of the collective unconscious. They are expressions of the archetypes, those psychic entities that exist unchanging while the momentary individual egos come and go. Okay, so now Edinger's pointing out that there are there is a part of human experience that is something like the Greek gods. It's unchanging and immortal. It's what Jordan Peterson called transpersonal forces. So there are things that impact us, everyone, um, and they don't seem to be part of ourselves exactly. They seem to be forces that are acting on us. You know, if you ever get enraged and you find yourself unable to control yourself, like you're taken over by the anger. Um, if you ever feel yourself compelled really powerfully by something like lust, it's also similar. You know, you almost can't control your behavior. It seems like you're like there's this pressure, there's this force being exerted on you, and your ability to say no, your ability to contend with it is like diminished to the point where you feel like you feel like a supernatural power is acting on you. You know. Your own will is not enough. Something, something stronger than your will is happening, you know? And then Edinger connects the, these ideas of these immortal patterns that the Greeks called gods that Jung called archetypes. And there are these patterns. These are these patterns that exist in a similar way to the, to the Greek gods. They, they exist unattached to an individual, kind of all on their own. And I know it's hard to make sense of, but you can just imagine anybody who's a parent, let's say. Um, there was a time in your life when you weren't, and you didn't know how, right? And then you were put into this situation where you had to. And there's a, a component that's learning, obviously. You're learning to be a parent. But there's also a moment when you become one. And you know it when it happens. You're not what you used to be. You became something else, something that is responsible like you never used to be before. Some, somebody that puts others before yourself in a way that you couldn't even really imagine before. It's one thing to be kind. It's one thing to be optimistic and want to spread the love and share the wealth. It's quite another thing to be willing to lay down your life for your child. You know, that's not something that is quite the same for even a, even a good friend, you know. 
So it changes you. And there's something like a pattern that's a, a potential inside your psyche. You know, if you happen to have children and put yourself in that situation where you have to rise to the occasion, a transformation will happen where you will become a parent and you will no longer be what you once were. And the archetype is the pattern of parent, of mother or father. There's a pattern of behavior and motivation that's already in your psyche that's waiting to be woken up. And if you put yourself in the position to wake it up, right, where you have to be a parent, you have to be responsible, you have to think about things you didn't used to think about, then you will embody that pattern. You will become that archetype. You will awaken that archetype. And it's already there in your psyche. You can think about this if you're familiar with like epigenetics. We have junk DNA. We have all this DNA that doesn't seem to be um, used. It's not, it's not making the proteins. There's other, other pieces of our DNA that are doing that and other pieces that just seem to be doing nothing. And scientists have, have proven that junk DNA can actually stay like that, basically turned off, switched off, and not doing anything. But you put yourself under di- different circumstances, like, you know, you move to Africa where, like, West Nile virus and, and you know, malaria is a problem, and suddenly DNA that was just doing nothing while you were living in the United States starts to turn on because you're exposed to these things that require some some part of your body, some part of your DNA to produce whatever it is that's going to protect you from that. And so what that is is something like potential that's there in your DNA that hasn't been switched on because it's not needed yet. And now you can take that same analogy and apply it to an archetype. Archetypes are like that. They're patterns that are there in your psyche, not in your DNA exactly, but in your, in your brain, in your mind, in your psyche. And they can be turned on. So think about it like that. All right, Edinger says, One of the striking features of the Iliad is that gods and men are active on the same stage. So there's more to this, but that's pretty, pretty interesting. The Greeks saw the gods and and human beings as active on the same stage in the material cosmos that's where they're active it's not where the art it's not where the gods exist right they exist on olympus they exist in heaven they exist in some invisible place but they're active in the physical world just like you and i so we have more in common with gods in that way than you might think if you were a, a you know a christian or a jew or a muslim it's like the place in which the gods can act, you know, and be effective in the world. Isn't in heaven, it's on earth, you know, just same as you and me. He says, if we take this as a picture of the psychological realm, we see that there is interpenetration between ego experience and archetypal factors signified by the gods. What we do and what we experience are constantly interpenetrated by these other powers. Although as a rule, consciousness is making so much noise, it doesn't notice. Okay. Okay, so what is he saying here? He's saying if we take this from a psychological perspective, we can see that our experiences, 
that, you know, those are our ego experiences, the things that we call our day-to-day life, that those experiences are actually interpenetrated by these archetypal factors, by these patterns that exist in our psyche. And so there's some kind of a back and forth going on between the unconscious and the conscious. And human beings are something like that, a combination of consciousness and unconsciousness. So there's an interpenetration, there's a back and forth. He also says something interesting here. He says that we don't often notice these archetypal forces. Even though they're interpenetrating, they're influencing us in various ways, a lot of times we don't even pay attention to, to notice that they're happening or at least that they're not part of ourself. And Edinger says that our consciousness is typically making too much noise, so it doesn't notice these archetypal forces at play. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of that, but I've said before that sometimes if you have a lot on your mind, you know, it happens to me, I lay down to sleep and I can't rest. I can't get enough peace and quiet in my mind just to drift off, you know, because I got too many thoughts, too many, you know, plans, too too much spinning around upstairs that I can't quiet my mind down. I'm too preoccupied with what I need to do and, and all that sort of stuff. That's what comes to my mind. It's like my mind won't shut up. It won't shut up so I can sleep. It's making too much noise. And when that happens, it overshadows the more subtle things going on, you know? And there's an interesting parallel to this idea of, of your ego making too much noise for you to notice uh, what's going on. And it, it's, it's not a direct parallel, but I think it's interesting. If you go back to the earliest myths that we have, the ones that come from uh, Sumeria and Babylon, there's a creation story called the Enuma Elish. There's also a hero story called Atrahasis or Gilgamesh. Um, and both of those stories have something that sounds like this involved. In the creation story, Enuma Elish, the reason that the gods create human beings is because they have too much work to do. And so they want to create something that can do the work for them. But once they create human beings, they find that they're too noisy. Human beings are too noisy. And it's to the point where the gods can't rest. So they flood the earth, which is the Noah flood story that we see in the Bible. They flood the earth in order to rid the earth of the consciousness that won't shut up human beings. And I think there's something like this going on here. There's something that connects Edinger's uh, notion of, of consciousness not uh, being too loud, too noisy, to notice these um, gods. And the story uh, that we hear from from Samaria. All right, that's neither here nor there. So Edinger he he uh, continues. He says, the fact that there are twelve Olympians is surely significant. One need only think of the twelve hours of the day, the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles of Christ, the twelve signs of the zodiac the twelve labors of Heracles. Twelve is related to the symbolism of wholeness. Okay, so this is interesting. I'm not really sure what it means. Uh, There's a lot of of stuff that can be said about numerology and sacred numbers and geometry and that sort of thing. Um, But what he's saying is that from a symbolic perspective and a psychological perspective, this number twelve represents a wholeness. And wholeness is something like like what, 
like what God is at the deepest level. You know, you often hear hippies and mystics say that God is one, um, or all is one. And so this wholeness is an important idea when we're talking about uh, religion at all. So it's like, um, you know, parts of a whole, and, and somehow 12 is an important number to represent a wholeness, and that's why you see it all over the place. So it's, you know, I don't, it's not clear how the Greek gods came about, and the history is deep and shadowed, and I don't know that we can really dig deep enough to find out, but eventually they settled on 12, and that's interesting. It's like when you look at possible types of personalities and motivations that human beings experience, when you look at the full scope of human experience, there's something like 12 types, and they figure that out. And it's strange. Like, I don't know if you or I could limit it to 12. We may have more, we may have less if we try to come up with it on, the, on our own. But they thought about it over a long time, and they came up with 12. And the strange part is that that coincides with so many other uh, religious symbols that are like that. Not even religious symbols. If you, When you talk about 12 hours in the day, it's just really interesting, right? Then he says, the ego tends to experience the self, not as a unity, at least not at first, but as a multiplicity of archetypal factors that one can think of as the Greek gods. From the viewpoint of depth psychology, the gods stand for the archetypes, the basic patterns within the human psyche that exist independent of personal experience. Okay, so let me just start with the first part. He says, the ego tends to experience the self. Now, I'll define those words for you if you're not familiar with Jung. But the ego is the thing that you think of as yourself. The thing that you associate with your thoughts, your opinions, your face, um, you know, that sort of thing. Your memories. Um, the self, though, is a bigger picture than that. The ego is part of the self, along with all the other forces that are that are swimming around inside our inside our uh, soul. You know, for lack of a better word, all these archetypal forces that we talked about that we don't identify with. You know, when I say that I got um, uh, what's the word possessed by the spirit of anger, and I got angry and I couldn't control myself, I became anger, whatever that means. I wasn't quite myself, was I? And what is that force anger? It's not me. It's not my ego. I don't associate with it. But it's still there. It's still part of me and it can still take over. It's part of the self, if you understand. So the ego and all these archetypal forces are part of this larger thing that, we, that Jung calls the self. So he says the self is not thought of as, as a unity. It's not thought of as one thing, at least not at first. At first it's thought of as a whole bunch of things. And those things we can talk about as the Greek gods. So within us, we have Ares, Hera, Zeus, Poseidon. We have these personalities and motivations within us that we tell stories about and call by these various names. So archetypal forces are something like motivational forces. We used to call them spirits. They're motivational forces that are living within us, you know? They're also competing. They're competing with the ego. They're competing with each other. You know, think about any time you ever had a decision to make where you had two competing interests. You know, maybe, maybe, um, 
maybe lust and anger were at odds with each other. You know, you had a big fight with your wife and you, you know, you t- the last thing you wanted to do was make up with her. You're all angry and bent out of shape and unsatisfied. And, and then your libido kicks in. Your wife looks awful pretty over there. And you're like, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do? Do I give in to the anger side? Do I give in to the lust side? These forces that are within me are competing with one another. And one of them has to win, you know? Do I make up and, and allow this sexual drive to kind of um, kind of uh, whitewash over the, the fight that we had? Or do I stick with my guns and stew in my anger and, and you know, uh, uh, keep my, um, my sexual appetite at bay? You can see how that happens. And you can see why, in that perspective, we don't see them necessarily as part of ourself, but as some sort of transpersonal forces that are acting on us against our will to some degree. That's what a God is, right? All right, then this last part, last part of this phrase is, is interesting for a different reason. He says, the gods stand for the archetypes, and they're the basic patterns in the human psyche that exist independent of personal experience. That's the part I want to focus on, that the archetypes exist independent of personal experience. So there's one way where I can say, look, I've experienced rage and anger. I know what that's like. I've seen it in other people also. So you have this example. It's personal in you. It's not personal when you see it in somebody else, but you can also see the thread that connects your anger to their anger. Is it the same anger? Is it like a spirit flowing from me to them? Is it the same thing that's making us have this, this feeling? We can, also, we can also take that a step further and say, if we're calling that Aries, you know, this God, Aries exists not, not just as the thing in me that's causing me to be, you know, enraged, or the thing in my neighbor causing him to be enraged. It exists in the image of this God we call Aries. So it's outside of any individual. And that may, not, that may not be convincing to you, but I want to give you a couple of, of other examples. So when I'm studying consciousness, which I've done quite a lot lately, uh, one of the examples or questions that comes up is about, it's about qualia. It's about the, the qualities of our experience that aren't explainable uh, from physics. And color is a really common example. It's like you have a color like green, and we see it in objects, but physics will tell you it doesn't exist in those objects. You know, we say, oh, a plant's green because chlorophyll's in there, and it's green. It, you know, it uh, um, absorbs all the different light except for green and reflects it, and that's why it looks green. No, no. There's no part of the atoms and electrons that make up all of that plant that is green. There is no part of it that's green, period. Green doesn't exist in the objects. It exists in our psyche. And the way you can tell that is that you can see various green things, but you can also close your eyes and imagine green. Not attached to any particular object, just the color, all by itself. And that's the proof that green exists all by itself. Where does it exist? Hard to say. Hard to say, isn't it? If it's not in an object, where does it exist? How does it exist? It's a mystery. It's the mystery of consciousness, one of many. But you can see how the color green is transpersonal. 
it exists, you know, in the psyches of all different creatures, right? Human beings and anything else that can detect color, that color exists in objects. And yet it's not really in the objects. And we can imagine green apart from any particular green thing. Here's another example. It's about knowledge. This goes back to a philosopher named Kant. Um, but there are certain types of knowledge that we seem to have before we've learned it or before we've had any experiences that would teach it to us. So really simple mathematical concepts like, like 1 plus 1 equals 2, that's true, right? It's true even if there aren't objects to count, isn't it? So math, mathematical knowledge is, is what's called a priori knowledge. It's knowledge before experience. I don't have to take one apple and then put another apple next to it and then count them up to understand that one plus one equals two, even though that would be, that would be perfectly true in, in, in reality, something representing those numbers. The thing is, the numbers and the mathematical concepts, they aren't a part of the object. They exist on their own, with or without the object. And we know that because we can have that knowledge. We can understand intuitively that 1 plus 1 equals 2 without ever counting anything. And even if there aren't objects to count, it's still equally true. So you can see here how something like green or something like mathematical knowledge, they're connected to consciousness and not to material reality. They're unusual sorts of things. But it helps you to see how things can have a, an existence that isn't material, that isn't dependent on the laws of physics. That's something else. And this is how the gods are understood in, in classical antiquity. They exist, but somehow differently, someplace differently. Edinger says... Mythologically, these patterns are, are <clears throat> thought of as gods, existing in a special place apart from ordinary human experience. So even though they're active, right, in the same plane as human beings, they don't exist there. They exist in a special place. Now, Edinger says the Greeks called that special region Olympus. Now, when we talked about um, Young's pupils in the past, especially when we talked about Louise von Franz and, and her exploration of fairy tales. This is very clear that whenever you see a mythological realm, you know, heaven, Olympus, the underworld, Hades, Valhalla, you know, the fairy world, um, you know, the upside down, you know, anytime you see a place like this that's, that's illustrated for you, it represents the unconscious. It represents the place that's like that within us. It's invisible. It's unknown. It's the place our dreams come from. It's the place our insights and our interests come from. Um, it's a mysterious place. You know, it's a mysterious thing, this part of ourselves that we call unconscious. This is what Edinger is pointing to when he's talking about Olympus. It's a special region. He says, in the Odyssey, Homer describes Olympus as the abode of the gods that stands fast forever. Neither is it shaken by winds or ever wet with rain, and over it hovers a radiant whiteness. This is just one version of heaven as the trans transcendent, transcendent realm beyond the personal. Okay, so, so this description of Olympus, I think, is interesting from Homer. 
So the abode of the gods stands fast forever. Well, that means it's eternal and unchanging. Okay, there's nothing about our world that is like that. Everything is always changing, decomposing. Entropy continues to expand. The universe continues to expand. We see nothing that's static and eternal. Nothing. But we imagine a place like that. And that's interesting all by itself. He said it's, it's never shaken by wind or wet with rain, which means it's not part of the material cosmos. It's some place that isn't subject to weather, right? And then he says something interesting. He says it, that over it hovers a radiant whiteness. So I don't know what comes to mind about that, but you can see like, um, you know, a glow or an aura around something that... that uh, you know, indicates it's holy or divine or so. That, that Those sorts of things are common. But this radiant whiteness came up in other myths. I mean, we heard about it from von Franz. I remember in particular, she was talking about an Aztec myth of a mountain that they were looking for. It's called the White Woman or the White Mountain. And you have this whiteness associated with this, with this supernatural realm, very much like what we're seeing with, with Olympus. And whiteness is interesting. It, you know, it... It's a symbol. Well, it's a symbol of all the colors together, right? When you have all of the wavelengths of light together, what you seem to have is white, and, it, and you can't detect color in it. It's like there is no color, and yet all the colors are there. When you combine them, you end up with this absence of color that we call white. And I think that's extremely, extremely symbolic and, and important because it describes something like, like I like I describe when I talk about God, something like potentiality, you know, the all. So whiteness is all colors together. What that means is it's the potential for any color to emerge. Any color can come from that whiteness. It's all there. And that's something like what God is, the potential from which anything can come. It's all there. And that's what we see surrounding this realm of the gods. I find that to be very, very interesting. And Edinger says, almost all primitive mythologies involve some notion of heaven as an abode for the gods with something of this eternal, untarnished quality. Psychologically, we can consider the idea of an Olympian realm as a projection onto the outer world, in this case the sky, of an inner state, a state that is eternal, unchanging, in the realm of the spirit. All right, so this idea of projection probably requires some explanation, but one of the things that Jung says is that the things that are within us, the forces and powers and spirits, these archetypal forces that are in our psyche, um, that we, when we aren't experiencing those forces within ourselves, or when we're pretending like they don't exist within ourselves, what we do is we project them onto the world. So I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. There's something Jung talks about when he talks about the shadow, which is an archetype. But the shadow is something that, well, it's something like the part of yourself that you don't want to identify with. So if you have, if you have instincts, impulses, forces um, in your mind that are violent, and you know you're not a violent guy and you don't want to be violent, but you have these violent thoughts and ideas that come to your head from time to time. And you're like, you know what? That's not me. I'm a nice guy. 
I never heard a fly. I'm a sweetheart. Um, I'm just going to bury those thoughts down. When they come up, I'm just going to bury them right back down and pretend like they don't exist. Well, according to Jung, that's like the worst possible thing you can do. Because what's going to happen is you're going to project that dark force onto the world. You're going to think that other people are out to get you, that other people have these dark thoughts. And it might keep you from becoming friends with them. It might keep you from trusting them. And it's all, it's all you. It's all in your head. This is very, very common with people that cheat on their spouse. You'll see people that are unfaithful that start to eventually, eventually get paranoid that their, their spouse is the one being unfaithful. And they're projecting all that on them. This is what we do. And this is what he's pointing out uh, is done with, uh, with the sky. It's like we have this unconscious experience. We have this part of ourselves that's unconscious, this deep chasm of mystery where the archetypes exist. and We don't really know what they are, but they inf- impact our lives and we don't really know how to deal with that. And, uh, you know, all that. And we look up at the heavens and we see something similar. We see this infinite expanse of space filled with mystery, just like we see in our unconscious, an infinite expanse of space filled with mystery. So what do we do? We look up at the the sky and we say, there's the unconscious, there's heaven. Even though it's within us, we project it out onto, onto the external world. So we pretend the unknown part of ourself an abode of our spirits exist out there in the physical unknown. Okay, Edinger says, this idea is developed in Jung's concept of the collective unconscious, the abode of the archetypes. The heavenly realm of the Greek gods is seen as part of the human psyche, which is beyond time and space and beyond the control of, of the conscious personality. So that's what I mean when I said you feel lust or anger as a force that overcomes your will and, and seems to be forcing you to do things you don't you wouldn't really want to do if you had control over it. So it's beyond the control of your conscious personality. When you have those feelings, that's what the Greeks believed were gods. He says, when we take the Greek gods individually, we have a complete chart of the eternal or impersonal dimension of the psyche. We see a Zeus principle, an Aries principle, an Aphrodite principle, an Athena principle, and so on. We experience these principles in different ways. We observe them lived out in the personalities and behavior of others. We will encounter expressions of them in our dreams as numinous entities having a guiding capacity of some kind. Each of us contains within us the whole Olympian pantheon. Buddy. So when you dream and you have these images, these strange images, and you're not sure what they mean or where they're coming from or what they even are, Jung says that these are archetypal forces that are taking form in your psyche. They're showing themselves to you. They're revealing themselves to you. And they're trying to show you something, something that you're not aware of, something you need to become conscious of. An archetype you have to awaken, like we talked about earlier. And he says, each of us contains within us the whole Olympian pantheon. All of the personalities that are that are outlined by these gods, Zeus and Poseidon and Apollo and Hermes, we're gonna talk about all these all these gods, they have a certain personality, certain motivation attached to them, and we should see reflections of them, each and every one, within ourselves. 
So let's do that. This next bit I call Zeus, Poseidon, Hades. Edinger says, let us start with Zeus. He was the paternal authority principle, which was made up of Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. The Olympian triad can be thought of as different manifestations of the same basic principle. Okay, so this I didn't, didn't actually know. It's pretty interesting that Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades are brothers, but they're actually all representations of the same God. If you can think about the Trinity in Christianity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or if you can think about the Trinity from Hinduism, Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu, these are three separate deities that are supposed to actually just be one. There's three different manifestations or three different um, versions of the same deity. This I didn't know, but it's interesting. So Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades really are one and the same deity. Edinger says, He was a sky god associated with rain, wind, thunder, and lightning, and was the master of spiritual phenomena, since it was the spirit realm that was signified by the sky and the weather. So this is interesting. Um, so there's, there's violent weather, you know, when we experience terrible storms. You know, the emotions and the feelings you have when the thunder hits really hard or the lightning seems very close or very loud, you know, the rain's pouring down at different angles. There's a, re the wind is blowing. There's a real power and impression that violent weather gives you. And we don't really see where it comes from. It sort of seems like it comes from nowhere when it happens. And what we do is we, we equate the violence of a storm like that to, to chaotic emotions that we have. So you can think about having a storm raging inside you. You know what I mean when I say that. So this is how the weather, violent weather, that is attributed to Zeus, ties back to your spirit or your, or your psyche because you have violent weather in your own consciousness, you know? And it's the same idea that, that Edinger pointed out of projection. You know, we project our unconscious up into the cosmos and we project our own violent, you know, chaotic emotions um, and motivations as the weather, the violent weather that we see out there in the world. And Zeus was a master and originator of both. A connection between the realm of the psyche and the cosmos. Edgar continues, he says... He was a carrier of justice and judgment, an embodiment of law and the punisher of transgression. He was the personification of creative energy, which had an unceasing urge to impregnate, hence his perpetual love affairs. I think that's interesting. So we all know Zeus is a law uh, giver. We all know he's sort of the, you know, there's a, there's a really um, strong parallel between the God of the Old Testament, you know, the law bringer, and, uh, and Zeus. Uh, Yahweh, um, the, law of the, old, the God of the Old Testament, was also a God of the sky originally, so there's lots of um, connections between Zeus and, and the biblical God. But he says something here about, about he, he, uh, Zeus being the personification of creative energy. He's the creator. Now, that's something, obviously, we see in the God of the Old Testament also. He's a creator. But the thing about Zeus, if you read the stories, the uh, myths about Zeus, is that he just, he just went around 
impregnating got different uh, goddesses and different human human women. You know, he was doing it all the time, even though he was married. And what that's supposed to represent, Edinger says, is this unceasing urge to create. Right? Zeus is is the embodiment of creation itself, this creative energy. So of course he would be the stories we tell about him would be going around impregnating everything he can, because he's just trying to inject that creative power everywhere. And if you can go back, even before the Greeks, you can go back to the Sumerians and Babylonians, and they saw something similar. You know, they saw that rain and thunder were were the result of of the god. I think Adad was the weather god, and um, the rain when it came down, especially to do with mushrooms. And this is something that we talked about in the sacred mushroom and the cross episode, is that the these ancient uh, Mesopotamians believed that the rain was was God's spermatozoa. It was the semen. It was the life-giving, creative force of God. It came down. It got absorbed by the earth. Mother Earth is like the womb, right? It absorbs that that spermatozoa, and the thunder, lightning, activated, like this magical power. And that helps, uh, obviously, the, the grass to grow and the plants to grow. But it also does something interesting. It, it causes the mushrooms to sprout out of the ground, and they seem to be born overnight you know it's that's true in my front yard right now we had a rainy night mushrooms everywhere so so this ties back to zeus as well this creative energy that comes from the sky that is responsible for for new birth and creation and that was very common very common in the ancient world edinger says we find in the image of zeus and his lovers early forms of the same archetypal phenomena that appears later in the Christian Annunciation, the union of the divine and the human. I, I, hair standing up my arms. I just think that's, that's amazing. So you've got, this, you've got this idea of Zeus in the ancient Greek world impregnating human women and giving birth to these demigods. You know, um, Hercules comes to mind, um, you know, um, Achilles comes to mind, characters like that. And what Edinger points out is this is one of the first places where you see this symbol of the divine and the human coming together. And that will become exactly what we see in the Christian story, right? The God-man, human and the divine together. And that's what Jesus represents. And we can see this tracing all the way back to the ancient Greeks, probably even earlier. All right, Edinger says, how does this factor appear in psychology? It is not hard to distinguish what we might call a Zeus temperament. There are certain people who are embodiments of moral authority and who are capable of casting thunderbolts at transgressors around them. So who comes to mind when you think about a Zeus personality? Embodiments of moral authority. Somebody who's capable of casting thunderbolts. So, um, Jordan Peterson comes to mind. Uh, he's somebody that's been getting it from every direction, from the progressives and the lefties, uh, about all sorts of things that he's embroiled in that are, uh, really have no part of his goal. You know, what he's working, to, what he's been working towards as a psychologist and as a professor, and uh, you know, in, in academia and his books. Um, you know, he's getting embroiled over 
you know, transgender pronouns and over, you know, uh, all kinds of nonsense. Uh, but I've seen him interviewed in very uncomfortable ways. And I've seen him straw manned and I've seen him ridiculed to his face, you know, and he takes that and it just brushes, he brushes off the insults. He doesn't take it personally. And he's so well thought out his ideas that he has a defense for every single, you know, ridiculous claim that's made against him. And he has no problem casting back thunderbolts in the other direction, pointing out how the progressives and the lefties are making moral mistakes or logical mistakes. As somebody who's capable of being a, a moral paragon, who's thought all that stuff through and believes it himself to the core, and so he can talk intelligently and sternly and confidently um, about it. That's a Zeus temperament, right? You can also see it embodied by authoritarians, you know, leaders of all kinds, priests, politicians, judges, parents, policemen, right? Zeus personalities, parental authority, right? And then Edinger says, Poseidon is the brother of Zeus and carries something of the same quality of authority, but he signifies authority from below rather than from above. He is the lord of the sea, the, sh the earth shaker. He is an earthly version of Zeus. He would be felt in the impact of concrete life events, that are beyond one's control. The Poseidon personality would have similarities to the Zeus personality, but his authority would manifest in concrete power, political and economic, as opposed to intellectual or spiritual power. Then he says there is less to say about Hades, the third member of this trinity. He shares with Hermes, to some extent, the position of leader into the unconscious, the underworld. In later imagery, he actually becomes a personification of death. It is difficult to identify a Hades personality. Hades was thought of as, as the lord of, uh, of the journey to the underworld, and hence he was thought of as the ruler of the phenomena of death and rebirth. So I do think it's difficult to identify a Hades personality, at least apart from the Zeus-Poseidon type of a personality. Um, but I, I will say... There are people that are obsessed with death. There are people who live towards death. There are people who celebrate it. I don't know that it's bad. Um, it does seem weird because it's unusual, but you can see like the um, Day of the Dead celebrations in Mexico, um, Dia de la Muerte, um, dressing up like skeletons and um, you know honoring the ancestors at at the the grave sites, you know, at the cemeteries. Um, you know, people having parties and celebrations in the cemeteries, that sort of thing. I also have people like, um, shout out to my buddy Matthew, that um, have a huge aesthetic appeal to horror movies and, uh, you know, the horror genre, gore and, um, you know, uh, demons and all, all the, whole, the whole thing. There, there is a certain type of personality that has a huge appeal in that direction. And I wonder if that is something like the Hades personality. All right, and that brings us to our next section, which I'm going to call Apollo. All right, Edinger says, Apollo's 
attributes are the sun, light, clarity, truth. He represents the principle of rational consciousness, which in so many heroic figures has difficulty in being born. Hera, in her jealousy, pursued Apollo's mother so that no place on earth could be found for his birth. Finally, he was born on the floating island of Delos, which shows us in what tenuous ways the light of consciousness first comes into the world. Let me just stop there for a second. He's, he's making a point here that the myth about Apollo being born is interesting because it was difficult for him to be born. And what Edinger's pointing out is, is Apollo represents consciousness. And it's always difficult for consciousness to be born. Always. I mean, just ask a woman who has to carry a baby for 12 months and go through, and go through painful labor how easy it is to bring consciousness into the world. But this goes deeper than this. It goes back to Jung and it goes back to uh, Neumann, who talked about myths of um, creation, you know, uh, early myths about the creation of the cosmos and the gods, and how what those stories are really talking about is the difficulty of consciousness being born from the unconscious, for consciousness to free itself from the source of consciousness, what we call the unconscious. It's always described as a separation, um, but it's painful. It requires great effort, and uh, and the unconscious doesn't abide it lying down. The unconscious fights back. It wants to pull you back in. And there, there's this idea of um, what it must be like to be a fetus, like a, like a fetal consciousness where you're sitting, you're existing in, well, obviously in your mother's womb, but you're in this warm, dark place where there's nothing to do. There's no, there's no worries, right? You're getting all your nourishment and warmth provided to you. You don't have to ask for it. You live in this peaceful, paradisal sort of state where nothing is asked of you, nothing is needed of you. You're just consciousness, just, just consciousness, you know? And there's a great appeal to that. People like the idea of being unconscious, of no longer having to do any work, of no longer having any expectations, of no longer having to follow through with anything, no longer having to suffer uh, or desire, you know? There's a great relief in not having to desire anymore. So it is difficult, you know, to imagine resisting this idea of just floating back into this paradisal unconsciousness and just dying, you know, people who commit suicide will tell you about that appeal. And for consciousness to say, you know, to resist that appeal and to struggle and struggle and struggle until it can stand on its own, that it's not an easy feat. And this is what we see with Apollo being born. Apollo represents consciousness. And it wasn't easy for him to be born, right? They, the, all these other archetypal forces, these go, this great goddess Hera is preventing this, trying her best to prevent this from happening. She's the devouring mother figure. But he is born. And uh, Edinger says, No sooner did Apollo appear than the island took root and became solid land. That must say something about how the divine can come into being in the human realm. So that's also interesting. It's also sort of related to the Jesus image that, we, that uh, we'll talk about more, but how the divine can come into being in the human realm. So Apollo is born on the Isle of Delos. 
in Greece, on the human realm. The divine can come into being in material reality. That's exactly what we say about, about Christ. God became man. Here we, we, have, we have God being born in the cosmos. So it's something very like that. And it tells us how the transpersonal, eternal patterns, these archetypes or gods, can be actualized. They can be manifest. They can be embodied and made real in the physical cosmos, in the here and now. He goes on, he says, Apollo killed the python of Delphi. I want to point out that there's a parallel here to the serpent in the garden because that's what the, that's what a python is. It's, again, Apollo killed the python of Delphi and took over that oracle. So he is the vanquisher of unconscious terrors. He is golden-haired like the sun. He is an archer who shoots arrows of insight and death. He is a the god of music, the father of uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna mispronounce his name. Um, Asclepius, Asclepius, that's the god of medicine. It says music, history, drama, poetry, dance, all belong to him. So all, so consciousness and all of the, all of the things that consciousness brings about. History, music, dance, drama, all that stuff that comes, flows from consciousness. All that belongs to Apollo. Now, because history belongs to Apollo, I think that's interesting to mention because history is related to our ancestors, our ancestral wisdom, you know, what we've learned from our ancestors. And that's something that's highly correlated to this order principle that Apollo is supposed to represent, that consciousness is, is tied into. And we see it in lots of different religious traditions, and we certainly see it in, in the Greek. Okay, Edinger says, in his hymn to Apollo, Shelley expresses the Apollonian principle. So here's Shelley's, a bit of Shelley's poem I'm going to read to you. I am the eye with which the universe beholds itself and knows itself divine. All harmony of instrument reverse, all prophecy, all medicine is mine, all light of art or nature to my song victory and praise in its own right belong. Man, that's so good. Even just that first bit all by itself, I am the eye with which the universe beholds itself and knows itself divine. God damn, that's good. And that's true. Apollo is the eye, but so are you and so am I, right? Apollo's consciousness, that's what we are. We are the thing that beholds itself as the universe and knows that it is God. God damn, that's some mystical shit. Uh, I mean, the, the Oracle of Delphi was also very mystical, so it, it kind of goes together, but I love that. And Edinger says, Shelley's hymn celebrates the power and virtue of consciousness and the capacity for truth. The Apollonian personality would be someone who emphasized these qualities at the expense of the dark Dionysian side. So I don't know what kind of person comes to mind, but somebody who values uh, rationality, logic, the scientific method, truth, history, being able to rely on, on the wisdom of our ancestors. Um, you know, somebody like that, that's somebody who, who values culture, somebody who respects uh, the wisdom of our ancestors, um, 
You know, not somebody trying to reinvent the wheel, somebody that's responsible for law and order and the status quo um, and progress. And that's uh, like, like we started with at the beginning, talking about Nietzsche and the Apollonian versus the Dionysian. It's something exactly opposite of that primal, visceral, unconscious, instinctual Dionysian kind of personality. That brings me to my next section, which I'm going to call Hermes. All right, Edinger says, Hermes is portrayed with wings on his head and sandals. He is the divine messenger, and hence implies something similar to what is symbolized by angels. He is a wind god, and he moves with the wind. He is the god of revelation, the bringer of dreams, the guide of the dark way, and the psychopomp. He was also depicted as a good shepherd, caring for the souls of men. The image of Christ as the good shepherd derives from this image of Hermes. What? Did you know that? Did you know Jesus is the good shepherd? That that image came from the ancient Greek religion? It was originally Hermes? It's amazing. Let's start at the beginning. So Hermes is depicted with wings on his head and his sandals, and he's the messenger of the gods. And Edinger says... Well, it's a lot like an angel if you think about it, and he's not wrong, right? An angel has wings. An angel is an intermediary between between God and, and human beings. An uh, angel is a messenger, someone who brings revelation. And that's exactly what Hermes was. He's associated with the wind, right? He's that invisible force that moves quickly and invisibly. And he's the god of revelation and dreams. He's also the psychopomp. So vocabulary lesson. What is a psychopomp? Psychopomp is a character that escorts you to the underworld. So if you are um, uh, Dante in the Divine Comedy, the psychopomp is, is Virgil, the person who takes you to heaven and hell. Um, I don't know if you remember when we talked about Sir Humphrey Davy. He had a psychopomp. He had a, a genius. He had a genie spirit that took him up to the heavens and showed him the angels. This is what I'm talking about. Somebody who takes you to the other world or helps you helps you to it. About Hermes here, Edinger says, he was the god of boundaries. Hermes is derived from the word herm, a pile of stones marking a boundary. Though Hermes is the guarantor of boundaries, he is the one who is beyond them. Hermes is the great trespasser, a crosser of boundaries, the god of travelers, and on the darker side, he was the god of thieves. The boundary between what is mine and what is yours is the one that he crosses. <sighs> Buddy. He says the hermetic principle can deceive the, Apo- the Apollonian principle. He can be ambiguous and false. And that gets him into places that absolute light and truth could never enter. Mediator between the human and the divine, or in psychological terms, between the psyche and the unconscious. His functions, hermeneutics, for instance, is the science of the interpretation of scriptures, extracting the hidden meaning. Oh boy, so we talked about, we talked about uh, the Hermetic traditions and Hermes Trismegistus and all that stuff in prior episodes, so you can see what he means here by hidden knowledge and gnosis being the realm of, of Hermes. But I want to focus on what he says in the beginning. 
he says that the, that the hermetic principle can deceive the Apollonian. Now remember, Apollonian is consciousness. It's the stand-up guy that always do the right thing, follow the rules, obey the law, uphold the law, you know, embody, embody that. It's that type of a person. And he says that the hermetic principle can deceive that person. It can be ambiguous and false, right? The Apollo can't, right? He speaks only truth. But Hermes... Hermes can fuck around. Hermes has a little bit more leeway. And it says that gets him into places that the absolute light and truth could never enter. Right? So if you have to be false for the greater good, right? If you're one of those types of people, that's the Hermes principle. Right? The Apollo principle would never allow that. It would be upstanding till the end. But the Hermes principle, the Hermes principle might bend the rules. Right? So you can see that particular type of personality. I'm sure you've been there before, once or twice. All right, he says, there are people who are Hermes personalities, whose guiding direction seems to be an interest in the hidden, who are carriers of secret lore, of things that are not on the surface, transcenders of the ordinary boundaries of human understanding. The principle can serve as an objective inner guide to the unconscious, a good example was Virgil's function in the Divine Comedy. Virgil was Dante's Hermes, his psychopomp to the underworld. All right, so I want to give you a confession. While we're doing this, I'm, I'm thinking, do I see these personalities in, in myself, in my past? Do I see how they've worked in, in my life? And uh, while we're talking about Hermes, I have to say, I see Hermes in myself. I see myself in Hermes a lot. I have an interest in hidden knowledge, always have, you know, hard-earned knowledge, you know, mystical knowledge, philosophical knowledge, um, religious knowledge. I have an interest in treasure hunting, in, in relics, in, in the deep past, you know, I have a fascination with archaeology and dinosaur bones and, you know, um, Gobekli Tepe and ancient ruins and, you know, that sort of thing. I... I have a metal detector, you know, I go around looking for treasure. This is the kind of stuff that fascinates me. And I place the highest value on mystical experience. If you listen to this podcast, you know that. What is mystical experience except for knowledge or experience beyond human understanding? So I, so I definitely seem to embody this Hermes principle more than any of the others. I can definitely see Apollo in myself as well. Um, I can see some of the Zeus in myself as well as a parent, definitely. Um, but I think Hermes is kind of the, the thread for me. And that brings me to Aries, the next section. Edinger tells us Aries was the god of war, strife, fighting. Aries is the principle of aggressive energy. Psychological manifestations of the Aries principle would be aggression and disputation. It is the attitude of the polemicist who has more interest in the, in the fight than in substance. It also embodies courage and the capacity for aggressive self-assertion. Professional athletes, trial lawyers, and professional soldiers would fall into this category. The Aries principle emerges in situations where aggressive energy is required. 
Heraclitus said that war is the father of all things. And in a certain sense, the willingness to fight one's way out of original containment, out of original collective identity, is a requirement for psychological development. So that last bit's a little bit of a curveball, but I'll put, it, I'll put the context on it for you. He said that the Aries principle emerges when aggressiveness is needed. So it's one of those, it's one of those um, things we were talking about earlier when I said that you might have um, junk DNA that gets turned on, right? When you, when you find yourself in a circumstance where your body needs whatever that thing codes for. Same thing here. You put yourself in a situation where you need to be aggressive and you will awaken this potential in your psyche, this Aries principle that's always been there because you need it. Now, this last bit here, he's talking about how you have to fight your way out of original containment in the collective unconscious. And this goes back to what I was talking about earlier, these old, you know, ancient myths about the origin of uh, the gods and the cosmos and how they talk about, well, this, this force of chaos that exists in the beginning and that consciousness or, the, or the, the gods are born from it. And it's a very difficult process of pulling yourself free from this unconscious force that doesn't want to let you go. And so you have to fight your way out of it. You have to fight your way to your own independent existence. And you need aggression to do that. You need Aries to do that. And you can think about any time where you had to do that. Any time where you had to stand up for yourself. Any time where you had to fight back or put your foot down. Especially if you didn't want to, but you were forced to. You brought that Aries forth, you know? And that brings me to the last section today, which is, which is called Hephaestus. Edinger tells us, Hephaestus, the blacksmith of the gods, was the master of fire. He was rejected at birth by his mother Hera because of his ugliness and was thrown out of heaven down to earth. A certain analogy exists between the fate of Hephaestus and that of Lucifer, which can, which can be seen in Milton's Paradise Lost. So for those who don't know Paradise Lost, um, well, I mean, God is Lucifer is thrown out of heaven. Well, God casts him out of heaven down to earth, and so you kind of have the same thing happening with Hephaestus when he's born. But I also see God coming to earth. I also see that in the story of Jesus. I see it in the avatars of Vishnu from Hinduism, right? God becoming a man. But I also see that in fire, right? Where, where uh, excuse me, Prometheus, where, where Prometheus brings fire down to mankind. A god comes down to man and gives them this gift. And isn't that funny that Hephaestus is the master of fire? And we have the same sort of thing here in, in the story of Prometheus. Edinger says, Hephaestus is the only god who has a major relation to earth, which became his realm and he thus signifies the divine power that has descended to earth and has become connected with earthly reality. In him, we have a foreshadowing of the incarnation image of God becoming human. Hephaestus stands for the archetypal inventor and a creative artist. He represents creativity that develops out of defect or need. He is the only manifestation of imperfection, in the whole Olympian realm of perfect beings. Psychologically, this indicates that an archetypal power has entered into personal reality, 
and has brought the creative principle to the earthly realm. It suggests that creativity is born out of a sense of inadequacy. Necessity is the mother of invention, is a Hephaestian principle. The Hephaestian principle breaks into two. On the one hand, the artist and craftsman emphasizing beauty, and on the other, the engineer and mechanic emphasizing utility. The Hephaestian temperament is to be found particularly in those who live by beauty and those who live by utility. Such a temperament is preoccupied with work of the hands. So you can see people who are inclined to to build and and construct um, architects and engineers and those types of people. That temperament is something like the Hephaestian principle. So maybe you see that in yourself. Maybe if you're somebody who's always wanted to learn how to work on cars or to, to, you know, to be a carpenter or something, if you've always wanted that, maybe, maybe that's some sort of unfulfilled Hephaestian principle within you. And that brings me to my conclusion. We've taken a look at the masculine side of the archetypal realm, as embodied by the personalities of the Olympian gods. We will do the same for the feminine side in an upcoming episode. But it is important to recognize that these archetypal patterns and personalities manifest themselves in our lives now and in the past. We often feel these personalities operating within us simultaneously. We feel the internal struggle of one force over another, one motivation over another, all of the time. It's a battle of the gods. In my higher, more intellectual moments, I see Apollo and Hermes steering me, so to speak. In my more primal moments, I become Ares and Hephaestus. And all the while, I seem to watch this drama playing out from an observer's perspective, within me and in the world around me. Do you see these forces in yourself? and who you are, and who you've been, or who you'd like to become? When you are enraged, do you feel Aries taking over? In lust, are you aware of the Eros within? In moments of jealousy, can you hear the voice of Hera? Now, Edinger provides a potent illustration of his own. I present it here for you to chew on. Edinger said, We can see Apollo, Hermes, Ares, and Hephaestus as four principles of masculine psychological functioning. We can imagine them as they operated in the immense project of the 1960s that sent a man to the moon. It was Apollonian man, represented by the scientists and the planners, and their ideas who made that leap possible while Hephaestian man, signified by the engineers and the factory workers, made the equipment and the hardware that brought success. Aryan man, represented by the astronauts who had the courage and the aggressive energy to make the trip. And Hermetic man, and those who are yet to come, will grasp the larger, hidden, and symbolic meaning of the arrival of man on the moon. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored. 
but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.